Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com I'm Mick Garrison welcome once again to the fun size episode of postmortem AMA where you can ask me anything and producer Joe is going to ask me your questions producer Joe how are you here in the thick of the production of your screenplay that's, that's taking right place up in uh, it, it, it is. I'm not up there, though, because of COVID costs and such. But, uh, you know, I actually just finished watching the dailies uh, and it's looking good. Alejandro Burgues is doing a nice job. Uh, he's one of the greats. He is. He's he's pretty good. But but don't tell him that, though, because no, know, no. we don't want his we don't want his ego to, you know, <laughs> get yeah, out of check. A, a swollen Cuban head is nothing to be proud of. <laughs> Well, uh, we got lots of great questions, Mick. Shall we? Uh, shall we dive in? Let us dive. All right. Mikey writes, "Dear Mick and Joe, this isn't a question, but I just want to say thank you for your amazing podcast that I listen to at my Amazon warehouse zombie job. <laughs> the Kevin Smith interview floored me. I'm so glad you survived such a horrible experience. You survived true horror. Thank you, and stay safe." Well, Mikey, that's very kind words, and I really appreciate it. I mean, we do this show for the audience and and want to really kind of open up personally and with our guests in ways that you don't normally hear them talk about their, their work and their lives and themselves on Entertainment Tonight type shows where answers are bite size. <laughs> And here our show is fun size, but, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to, to have these people open up on the show and it's, it, it feels really special. And, and the fact that it it's working for you and, and brings you insight into who these guests are and all it, it is a great compliment. And, and it's the point of the show, you know, I learn something every time out, as I've said before, and hopefully our guests do too. Well, they sure did on that episode, Mick. Uh, yeah. sp speaking of, our, our next question kind of ties into it. Uh, Craig writes, Mick, you seem to be in good shape. What does your fitness routine look like? And did it alter after your recent health scare? Well, um, it, it certainly did alter in that uh, I, I cannot exert myself to the point that I did before, before the heart attack that uh, is what our 
questioner is referring to. I had a uh, what they call a widowmaker heart attack, totally unexpected. I'm doing fine. You know, uh, I've been a vegan for 10 years. And before that, I was a vegetarian. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never drunk an alcoholic beverage. I've never done recreational drugs, but I have really shitty genes. Thank you, mom and dad, as we said before. But my exercise regime before that was always, you know, hiking and, and uh, jogging up and down hills and, uh, um, and doing dumbbells and all that stuff. And I'm still doing that, but uh, the uphill heavy-duty hiking is something I'm curtailing for a while, but I'm still doing, you know, three to five miles every day and still doing the dumbbells and and trying to expand that exercise regime a little bit uh, every time out. And, you know, I feel as good as I ever did unless I start jogging up a hill and then, oh, I'm a little slower now. <laughs> but other than that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm full steam ahead. It was amazing to watch how fast you recovered. Uh, uh like, I mean, within a week, you were, you were your old self again, you know? Uh, so <laughs> yeah. I, I just figure if I didn't have that exercise regime before it happened, I probably would not have made it. Well, thank God you did. Um, Hal writes, I'm not surprised to learn that Nick is a pinball guy. <laughs> I love the creature machine too, but my favorite is attack from Mars. Are there any other movies you'd like to see made into pinball machines? It's not so much the movies as the the game. You know, if it's something that doesn't have just a big blank center where nothing happens, uh, you know, that's that's not so much fun. But, you know, Tales from the Crypt had a really good one. The Addams Family had a really good one. Um, but it's not something I think about, oh, I'd love to see this movie adapted into a game because... Most movies I love are all about story and character, and that's not exactly the main point of pinball. <laughs> I, I'm not attracted to video games so much, um, but I do love pinball. And having that machine here in the Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters is always nice to be able to get up and and shoot a couple of games when I'm getting uh, a little bleary-eyed from, from writing or podcasting. Yeah, well... Speaking of, you know, that, that pinball machine was a, a gift from your lovely wife. But uh, before, before that, you had a, a dating life. And this next question pertains to your, <laughs> your old dating life. Uh, Marlon asks, did Mick date Jamie Lee Curtis? Mick, did you go out with Lori Strode? What a weird question. Um <laughs> Uh, the answer is no. Uh, we were very friendly. Um, I was her publicist way back in 1980. Uh, however, I did take her sister Kelly out once for dinner and a movie. It was a oh. one time, you know, there wasn't a, a love uh, connection there, but it was a really nice time. And yeah, so uh, uh, it's a weird question, but uh, it's not too far from off. Also, just interesting that a couple of years later, you would be doing a psycho movie and Jamie's mom and a, just, yeah. a, just a interesting, uh, just an interesting tidbit in the 
many adventures of Mick Garris. Uh, <laughs> yes, it has been an adventuresome life so far and hopefully continues to be, although not in the dating era. <laughs> uh, no, no, especially not in that era. Uh, all right. Ryan asks, can you tell us about interviewing Rod Serling and what you took away from that experience? Yeah, that was the second interview I ever did after Ray Bradbury. And uh, Serling was tiny, you know, very short, uh, but he was a lightweight boxer. I learned that he was a boxer and very pugnacious in his attitude as well as uh, uh, having been a pug. Um, but he was, he talked about his nervousness. Uh, you know, I asked him about the smoking. I always had a cigarette in his hand when he was doing the introductions on the Twilight Zone. And he said it was because he was nervous. He didn't know what to do with his hands. And he had that very clipped manner of speaking and the like. It's because he was always uncomfortable in front of the camera. So that was a revelation to me that this this man of worldwide fame who stood up there introducing his his scary stories every week was really nervous about it and that those were ticks of his that he used to help fight that nervousness so i found that fascinating and it's fascinating uh you know it's interesting you kind of almost teased an answer to this next question but carlos writes can you share any stories about when you interviewed ray bradbury that was my very first interview that I ever did. And Ray Bradbury was my favorite author, loved him to death. I was living in uh, El Cajon, California, outside of San Diego, a suburb of San Diego, went to El Cajon High School, heard he was coming to town to speak at the local college. And he was quite an orator. He would travel to cities around the country and his speeches were amazing. He was like an evangelist talking about futurism and, and the, you know, what will be. And, you know, he was on uh, commissions about, um, he didn't drive a car, but he was on commissions about mass transit in Los Angeles where he lived and grew up. Well, he came from Illinois, but spent much of his early uh, adulthood and the rest of his life in the Los Angeles area. And so I went to see him speak several times, but it was amazing to be able to, after the speech, there was a table and I was sitting in a folding chair across the table from him on the stage in an empty theater after everybody had left doing a one-on-one -on -one interview with my idol. And he was so amazing and just so full of life and passion for everything beautiful and outer space and the future and space travel and all of that. Um, and I just found him to be overwhelmingly terrific. And, you know, it was great because there had been in 1959 an episode of The Twilight Zone that he had written, or it was based on one of his stories. I don't recall if he'd written the screenplay or not, called I, Tom, and My Electric Graham. The story was called that, and it became I Sing the Body Electric. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that one in particular. And here's this 16, 17-year-old kid asking about something that had been on the air in 1959, and he was really impressed that... I knew so much about his work. 
And that's kind of the key for me to interviewing anyway, is making sure they're comfortable that you actually know about and care about their work. And so that really opened things up a lot when he realized my passion for his work and my knowledge about his work. Well, that's interesting that you keep kind of uh, previewing uh, answers to our next questions. Uh, T.D. Perro <laughs> right. wants to know about your interview process and if there is a secret to pulling information out of your guests. Well, an awful lot of the guests are people that I know, but probably at least a quarter to a third of them I didn't know before they appeared on the show. But they're also people I'm interested in and whose work interests me. But the main thing for me is I, back in my Z channel days and in the beginnings of postmortem, I would come with a list of questions, a page or two of questions that I'd written out beforehand. And after a while, uh, I realized that it works a lot better if I just have knowledge of these people and their work and an interest and a passion and a quest for what they're all about and where they came from, and then let the interview take its course. I don't like having an interview interview become something prescribed, that if you keep asking questions that are from a list, you often block the tributaries that become much more interesting than the answers to the questions you've written. Mm -hmm. So... I think the important thing is letting your guests know that they're comfortable here, that I'm not going into anything negative or controversial, or I'm not going to ask them questions that will be embarrassing, but they feel safe and they feel comfortable. And they know the questions are coming from somebody who works within the same field that they do. But it's important that you have a knowledge about what they've done and an appreciation for what they've done and to not ask the same things everybody asks. Ask somebody about the things of theirs that you like that maybe weren't successful or are not the ones that, they, that everybody asks about. And so I think it's just trying to offer a safe place and a knowledgeable place and a welcoming place for them to open up and being a filmmaker, interviewing filmmakers makes it a lot easier and a different perspective than what they're used to being asked. So for this show, that's how it works. For anybody else, I, I don't know. I only know the way I feel most comfortable operating. Well, I think you've been very successful at it for a long time. So whatever you're doing, it's working. Uh, <laughs> Well, and with excellent uh, production assistance by Joe Russo. <laughs> well, speaking of, uh, gosh, you're, you're you're like you're like it's like you know where we're going. Uh, Crickshank Comics writes this question is actually for Joe. How did you become the producer of Postmortem? Uh, shall I shall I divulge that, Mick? Go for it. Well, so uh, Mick and I were putting together Nightmare Cinema, and. At some point, he had tipped me off to the old postmortem TV shows, and I found all of the interviews on his website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Yes. And uh, that is it. There's the plug. And uh, I just fell in love with all of the interviews, and I just gobbled them up. And um, I hadn't really been into podcasts too much at the point in time, but uh, I was actually one of the other projects that I'm attached to as a producer uh, is the Hulk Hogan biopic. 
So my producing partner on that project, Eric Bischoff, had his own podcast where he was interviewing wrestlers at the time. And I thought, gosh, you know, it would be so great to kind of recreate this. And I just happened to go to a party. And at that party, I met someone who worked for a company called Podcast One. And, you know, Turns I feel out like they were the biggest podcaster in the world. Who would have thought? Uh, and, you know, I, I just thought like, People pitch me movie ideas and TV show ideas all the time, as I'm sure they do you, Mick. Uh, and I was like, I have I have enough karma built up that I should be able to pitch this guy a podcast. Uh, so I, I did, and I pointed him in the direction of Mick's old interviews. And gosh, I think it was in within two weeks of that conversation, we were in the meeting with the head of the company, and we sold it in the room. And that was how Postmortem was born. Well, what's weird about selling it in the room was they sold us. Yeah, it it was not like we were pitching them a show, uh, which we were officially, but they were selling themselves on why we should do the show there. And yeah. I've never felt so wanted. That changed over the course <laughs> of the next year, but <laughs> well, that's another that's another, another story day. for another day. But but uh, but that was how it started, and and we've been lucky to keep it going for you know four years now which is which has been great so yeah we're well um, into our fifth yeah yeah yep so that is how i became the producer of postmortem i was i was there at the uh the the birth of the podcast so <laughs> and now your moniker of producer joe will live with you for the rest of your life that's that's right uh glenn asks how challenging is it deciding on the right title do you have story titles you love first, or do they come later? What do you think, Mick? Titles. You know, a title is important, and often it will get changed. Uh, and people always talk about having a working title. And of course, there's the British production company, working title films. But um, normally, it pops up right away for me. You know, mm -hmm. I'll have a title, I'll have an idea, but then a title will hit me. Like, Chocolate was the short story title for uh, what I adapted into my first Masters of Horror show. But for a while, it was too esoteric when I was taking it out as a feature, and I called it Double Vision instead, which makes mm. sense once you know the story. But I, I love simple titles. You know, Writing the Bullet was the title of King's story, and you use that in Desperation and The Shining in the Sand. My own stuff. You know, Jimmy Miracle came to me, which is a new script that uh, has just been optioned and we're, we're um, hoping to uh, get moving soon. Um, but that was the name of a character, not his official name, but what he becomes in the course of this movie. And it was an obvious way to go. The, the, the script that I wrote that still has never been made that got me my first job with Steven Spielberg was called Uncle Willie. You know, that they're, they're short and provocative. And it's like, wait, what does this mean? Who's Uncle Willie? What is that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think it is important. Uh, but then you go to something like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and we're going way back in history now. But that sounds like the worst title in the world. But it was a genius title because the ad campaign listed what Close Encounters of the First, Second, and Third Kind were. And, you know, it became a, you know, Jaws going back to the 70s again. 
it, you can't do better than a one word title like Jaws about a shark sure. attack movie. Yeah. You know? yeah. The title is important, but if you don't find it yourself um, and it doesn't come to you during the course of that, if you have success selling the script, um, then you're going to have a lot of help on title suggestions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, we're, I mean, I haven't had, other than Nightmare Cinema, I haven't had a movie yet that hasn't changed titles when it becomes <laughs> part of part of the time for marketing, you know? So And Nightmare uh, Cinema and Masters of Horror were two that came to me immediately. You know, yeah. one, one came out of the dinners that was a joke where we called ourselves Masters of Horror, um, ironically. Uh, and right. then Nightmare Cinema was something that that was just a title that said it all. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. So, I remember they batted. There was a moment where they batted around. Should we change the title? I'm really glad, really glad that 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 washed away very quickly. Uh, yeah. I couldn't even tell you what any of the alts were. <laughs> uh, but no, no, yeah, Bad no. Memory. But it's 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 tough because you fall in love with the titles on the script page, and and it can be really hard to. Uh, I still call Hard Kill the the Bruce Willis movie that I wrote. I still call it open source. Yeah. Uh, because it's just to me that's what it, that's what it was it's what it was for years until you know three months before the movie came out and i almost gagged in my mouth when i heard the new title so <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the worst one i ever had uh, was a, a three-hour tv movie i had done uh, with peter gallagher and mimi rogers called virtual obsession well yep. it was called virtual obsession two weeks before we started before it aired wow it, based on a book called host we'd always called it host and it was about an ai host yeah. and it made a lot of sense and the book was a bestseller in the uk here not so much um but it's like it it, it was the worst title of all and nobody watched it by the way because it was like daring males or females to watch it you know virtual at that time, very AI kind mm -hmm. of stuff was a very male appeal, an obsession for female appeal yeah. uh, in a Lifetime movie style. Yeah. And, and it wasn't those. It was a romance, but of a very different sort. And so in trying to appeal to a male audience and a female audience, it turned into male audience versus female audience, and neither one tuned in. Just a couple months ago, if people haven't seen it, I did find it, I think, on Amazon streaming. So uh, if, you, if you do want to seek it out, Virtual Obsession is still out there to be seen. It is. It is out there. All right. Rick, a proud postmortem nerd, uh, celebrates proper aspect ratio restorations on Blu-ray. But back in the day of VHS cropped pan and scan releases, did you feel the need to supervise how your films looked? on the home video release? Well, we almost always had the director of photography involved in the transfers. Sometimes they happen behind my back, like the original DVD and then Blu-ray of Sleepwalkers. Those were done by uh, Sony without even telling me they were coming. There was no um, commentary track or anything until it went to uh, the Scream Factory. Um, but yeah, you try and have as much to do with it as possible. But if you're working with a studio, they were doing panned and scanned versions or full frame versions back in the days of VHS. Uh, and the advent of DVD was the greatest thing to happen for home movie viewing 
because the original ones would often have full frame on one side of the disc and on the other side would be a letterboxed version the way it was the way God intended. And so that really made the difference and it made people realize that they weren't seeing as much. But a lot of people want the entire uh, real estate of their screen to be occupied or they feel like they're being cheated. Oh, this right. skinny little movie. I don't want to watch Blade Runner like this. I can't see anything, especially in the days when TVs were uh, well under 50 inches uh, in size. But um, yeah, we usually I would trust a DP and I would go in and oversee with them, just check in to see how it's going. But if the director of photography was happy, I was almost always happy. Well, there you have it, Rick. Uh, Conrad asks, when you find a director who shoots too much coverage for safety, do you feel that person is being wise or do they not have a firm grasp on what is actually needed for the scene to work? What do you think, Vic? What about, first, well, maybe we should define what coverage is for, okay. for people Cover who may not know. Coverage is the different angles that you shoot a scene so that you can cut it together in the cutting room to make its pacing most effective. Uh, the, the way you present a scene is in its most effective um, by the different angles from which you shoot. It is not my place to tell any other filmmaker how to direct a movie. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm, wanted mm -hmm. to shoot uh, all that coverage, that's fine. If you have the luxury and the time to do it. You know, if you're shooting independently, often that's not the case. And I will often come to the set with a shot list and realize halfway through the day, there's no way I'm gonna get all of these shots. And then you prioritize and which shots can I lose? You know, uh, one thing I, I saw doing uh, Masters of Horror was I got to watch like 20 different directors shooting their little movies and yeah. all of them worked differently. Mm -hmm. And Dario would come in and he'd often, the crew would often leave an hour or two early every day because he knew exactly what he was going to use, what he wasn't. He would shoot half a scene in close up if that's all he knew he was going to use, or just a line or two here and there. And, and there'd be a lot of moving camera. So that would cover a lot of what you do that you wouldn't want to cut into or out of. And so he was a very economical director in how many shots he did. And other directors, Sometimes it can be an insecurity for a new director that you want to shoot the hell out of everything so you know you've got everything covered. Mm -hmm. But also there's nothing more elegant than something that can be done in one moving shot that captures all of the elements that really propel it. But I've been in, in places in the editing room where I'd wished that I'd had another shot that just so that I could pace things up or make things move more directly and get rid of some dead space. Yeah. Um, so far be it from me to tell any other filmmaker how they would work. And, uh, you know, it's, it all depends on the movie that comes out. If the movie's good, then it was well-made. If a movie's not, then it wasn't. So I think it was, uh, I think it was a website called every frame of painting, uh, and they did a YouTube video on the Spielberg Warner 
uh, the legendary Spielberg wonder and, and where kind of like Dario it's, you know, you'd move the camera a lot and cover a lot of the, the scene within one take. But the thing that they were really quick to point out is that he would also cover certain inserts and things so that he right. had cut points in case he needed them. Uh, well, let so, me give you a Spielberg story that illustrates that. Yeah. <clears throat> we were doing amazing stories and it was the first episode of season two called The Mission. It was an hour long special and it's a World War II story and it's complicated. It's about a kid in a bomber uh, in the in the uh, gunner's bubble that is trapped and the wheels have been shot. The, the wheels are gone on this bomber. And so there's no way he could survive a landing. So this is an amazing episode. It's really terrific. Kevin Costner is a star in it. And Stephen is shooting and he's taking his time. He's walking it through and it's a long shot that he's going to be doing. And the sequence, they're working out all the details uh, rehearsing the cast, rehearsing the crew, rehearsing the camera moves, all of that stuff. And it's a TV show. So the main tower at Universal is calling down and asking, well, how's Steven doing? Uh, have you got the first shot in yet? Not yet. Um, it's We started at seven in the morning. Here it's nine o'clock. That's about the time you would get a first shot in with a feature director. So 10 o'clock comes. Have you got in the first shot yet? Nope, no first shot. 11 o'clock comes, 12 o'clock, it's lunchtime. We break for lunch and the studios are panicking. Have you got the first shot yet? Not yet. Everything's being worked out. Everything's being worked out. After lunch, calling action and everything is working beautifully. It's, it's a wonder for the whole day's work. Afterwards, he calls cut and that's a wrap. Ah. <laughs> he got his five page day in in one beautiful spectacular shot and everybody went home not long after lunch amazing and the amazing. tower was suddenly very happy <laughs> and uh, you, you can you can watch that it's available you you see it on the dvd or blu-ray or whatever um that shot is a film course in itself incredible well on that note mick i don't think we can do much better than to wrap it up there uh absolutely joe thank you for your help and thanks to everybody for listening to postmortem ama and joe tell us how and everyone can ask mick anything you can send your questions to mick garris pm on instagram and twitter uh or you can send them to me at Joe Russo tweets on Twitter or Joe Russo Graham on Instagram. All right. So thanks for joining us. Thank you, Joe. And thanks for all your questions. Thanks, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.
Calling all coffee drinkers! If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.